You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. What we're going to be looking at tonight is obviously the main things that are of concern to us are the things that are happening in Ukraine. But it has been a very eventful week, hasn't it? Last week we had a new prime minister and a new king. Now the prime minister was not unexpected. We were expecting a new prime minister, but we weren't expecting the queen to die so rapidly. Having handed over, as it were, from Johnson to Truss, that two days later she would die. But we shall come back to this at the end, gobbling, and have a few words to say about that. So what I want to look at is uh, Russia and Ukraine. And first of all, just paint the picture why Russia is so desirous of taking Ukraine, the background to why he is doing all this. And then we'll turn to the Bible and look at some prophecies, see what those prophecies expect us to see. Uh, and we can then see how those expectations being achieved uh, and what changes do we expect to lie ahead as a result of these things. And then finally, just look at the UK and her new prime minister and king. So Ukraine is a huge country. It's the biggest country in Europe, uh, if we exclude Russia, which of course spans Europe and Asia, but it's bigger than France. So it's a huge, huge country. And as far as Putin is concerned, it is a holy war that he is fighting because he regards the Ukraine as part of the Soviet, oh, not Soviet, the Russian Empire because of its birthplace of Russia. This is where Kevian Rus first began in the um, 800s, 900s. This was the birthplace of what became Russia ultimately. And not only that, but this was the birthplace of Russian religion. It was to Ukraine that uh, Vladimir I uh, went to Constantinople, brought back the Orthodox religion, uh, compelled all his inhabitants to turn from their paganism to uh, Orthodox Christianity. And so to Russia, this is not only their birthplace, but the birthplace of their religion, which of course today plays a big role in Russia's uh, events. And we know how Putin regarded the fall of the Soviet empire in 1991 as the biggest catastrophe of the 20th century because they lost so much of their land. And what Putin is wanting to do to be, and he models himself on Peter the Great and Catherine, Empress Catherine, who were both people who extended the Russian Empire uh, westward. He models himself on that. He wants to rebuild the Russian Empire as it was. So as far as he is concerned, this is a holy war um, to do that rebuilding. And he's not concerned at all. This is the Russian viewpoint of war. He doesn't care how much damage he does. Um, what he wants is to regain 
a lost empire. And you probably remember just over a year ago, he wrote an essay on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians and a comment on his uh, essay was he hints at a fresh annexation of Ukrainian territory, claiming, I'm becoming more and more convinced of this, Kiev simply does not need Donbass. Putin ends his lengthy treatise by declaring, I'm confident that true sovereignty of Ukraine is possible only in partnership with Russia. And Adrian Hilton, making this comment after he had invaded Ukraine, uh, some may remember him as the author of the book The Principality and Power of Europe. He has a very good insight as to the role of the Roman Catholic Church in the affairs of Europe. He had this to say, when Putin refers to the spiritual security of Russia and refers to Ukraine as an inalienable part of Russian history, culture and spiritual space, that spiritual security and spiritual space resides in the Moscow Patriarchate. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kevian Patriarchate is schismatic and must be brought back into the fold of Russian Orthodoxy. It is God's will. Without control over Ukraine, the Moscow Patriarchate wouldn't be the biggest Orthodox Church, and the Russian Church would lose the basis of its vision to be the centre of world Orthodoxy. The situation is comparable to the breakup of the Soviet Union, he added. Without Ukraine, the Soviet Union was no longer a superpower. And so he sees the fact that in Ukraine is one of the biggest Orthodox populations. And originally they were all attached to the Ros Moscow um, Patriarchate and were instrumental in making the Russian Orthodox Church the biggest of the Orthodox churches. Uh, subsequently, many broke away and became independent. And since the outbreak of the war, most of the Orthodox churches have broken away. So this has not gone as uh, Putin had hoped. And as far as they're concerned, if they don't have the population, Orthodox population of Ukraine, then they're no longer the biggest Orthodox church, which of course matters both to Putin and to Kirill, the head of the church. So that is the background. There's a lot more one could say, but time is short. But uh, Putin constantly refers to this fact that he needs that territory uh, in order to rebuild the church. So let's now look at some prophecies and just see what they lead us to expect. Now, we know the book of Revelation gives us history in relation to the saints. Uh, and the book of Daniel is a corresponding book in the Old Testament that gives us the history of the kingdoms of men. And Daniel chapter 2, of course, is the key passage that tells us of the succession of empires and the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek and the Roman empires that would succeed and follow each other. But of course, that's only just a little part of this image. If all we saw in Daniel chapter 2 was an unfolding of uh, history, then we'll have missed the greatest part. Um, 
what is important about all of these is that they all controlled Israel. Um, some more friendly, like the Medo-Persians, but they all controlled Israel. And the key to Daniel chapter 2 is in verse 28, when Daniel says to the king, there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. So this is much more than just showing us how the Medo-Persian took over from the Babylonian, etc., etc. It is telling us about the situation on the earth at the time of the latter days, which we're living in uh, with the return of the Lord Jesus. And so that is a most important verse. And we, we can see that that makes sense because towards the end of the chapter, it tells us thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands that smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So it is clear that the whole image crumbles together. Now, what this is telling us is that the image isn't yet complete. The feet are being formed today. And until those feet are formed, the image cannot stand on its feet. It will stand on its feet for a very brief time. And it stands on its feet in order to carry it into the land of Israel, to conquer Israel um, and fulfill Ezekiel 38. Now, Daniel chapter 2 doesn't tell us that he comes to the land of Israel, but we can see that if the stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth, this is the picture of the Lord Jesus and the saints and the kingdom, that's going to be in Israel. So if the stone becomes a great mountain in Israel, then it would seem reasonable that the stone smites the image upon its feet upon the mountains of Israel. That, of course, is what Ezekiel 38 and 39 are all about. So very briefly, let's just look at the legs, the ending of the legs, in order that the feet can form. So in the West, the Western leg, the iron of Rome and the Holy Roman Empire and its various phases, ended in 1918 with the last of the Habsburg monarchs, Charles I. Uh, and so we could begin to enter into the foot stage. Now, the characteristic of the foot is it's still got the iron of the leg, but it's mixed with miry clay. And that speaks to us of humanism, democracy, people power. Uh, and that's what happened and at the end of the First World War. Then people got the boat uh, and democracy comes along and we we're living in an age now where we have this strange mixture of uh, autocratism, the iron, uh, and democrat, the clay, mixing together. And we see it very much in the EU where you have an elected parliament, but you have the leaders are unelected. So 
what is happening now, especially with the Ukraine uh, war, it is now driving Western Europe to realize it's got to be more integrated. It has its own currency, it has its 27 member states, but this is the problem because everything has to be agreed by all member states and 27 member states don't agree on everything. So the only way for Europe to come really together is to ditch um, majority and, and uh, individual voting vetoes and go to majority voting. Now that's a big step, um, but that is what they're going to be driven to in order to uh, escape the abyss that they are staring at with the effects of the Ukraine war. And we shall also see um, an increase in the role of the papacy in the ruling of Europe. When Europe's on its knees, that's when the church will be able to rally people together uh, and bring them together. If we look on the other side, it's a very similar story because the eastern leg, the iron leg, came to an end in the same year, end of World War II, World War I, with Tsar Nicholas II being murdered. Communism came along. There was an element of democracy, um, not much. Um, but today there is a Duma, a parliament, uh, and a very autocratic Putin. Um, and we see the rebirth of the Russian church so that church and state work together. We're going to see a similar situation arising in the West. And of course, all this revolves around Israel because uh, this final manifestation of the image is to have control over the land of Israel for a very brief time. So it is fascinating, isn't it, that 1948, the State of Israel comes into being, and so the feet can really start getting formed. And that, as I say, they're still being formed. Now, if on that picture we paint the picture that Revelation gives us of the time of the end, um, we are in the time of the sixth vial, and the sixth vial introduces to us a beast that uh, looks like a, a lamb, uh, a dragon, and a false prophet. And it is by the cooperation of these three that the oh. nations of Europe and Russia are brought together to come against uh, Israel for the Battle of Armageddon. So it's telling us a similar situation, but using different symbols, um, but are very much based on the symbols that come from Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Now, the past two legs, um, and I've drawn them without feet, because when we go back in the history, the feet haven't been formed. So uh, one leg was in Rome, the other was in Constantinople. Um, the uh, Holy Roman Empire eventually, and the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople, and eventually with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, that Byzantine Empire moved up and was absorbed by Russia and became the uh, Russian Empire. So if I just put them out of the way a bit, 
the map I've chosen to superimpose these two legs shows the division between the Roman Catholic West and the Eastern Orthodox East. Uh, and the iron very much speaks to us of uh, the power of Rome. Uh, and Rome was taking the uh, Babylonian ideas uh, and bringing them into a state religion, um, but had a division between East and West. Now, I think that the division between East and West is our guide to how the two feet, uh, how nations will be drawn into the two feet, that they will have um, a, a base in Rome and a base in Constantinople when eventually uh, Putin or whoever is the uh, head of Russia comes down uh, to take Israel, they'll take Constantinople. Uh, and take up the role of the King of the North, but that's a different subject. But if we impose that division line on a modern map, we can see that there are a lot of nations which are wanting to be attached to the West or are attached to the West, that have got to be moved out and be attached to the East because they belong to the Eastern leg. So countries like Belarus and uh, Ukraine, Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria, um, Serbia, and those uh, Balkan states there, Greece, Turkey itself, Crete and Cyprus, they all belong to the Eastern leg. And what we're seeing is part of this process that will end up with Europe being divided uh, into those with the West uh, and those dragged to the east. A very important chapter in Daniel is Daniel chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles, just turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 is about the little horn of the goat. Yeah, the little horn of the goat represents the military power of Rome. It emerged out of the Greek Empire. Uh, and took possession of it, absorbed it, uh, and earlier in the chapter, which we haven't time to look at, it, it speaks of how this little power, the Roman horn of the goat, would uh, come to the Holy Land, uh, would put Messiah to death, uh, overthrow the city, uh, um, but that's all history. But at the end of the chapter, when we get to verse uh, 23 onwards, it speaks of this power still in existence because this is part of the image power. It's going to be uh, reassembled image, as it were. Uh, and so this power is going to be there. And in the latter time of their kingdom, he says in verse 23, when the transgressors are come to the full, the king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and holy people, the Jews. And through his policy also <clears throat> he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the Prince of Princes, the return of Lord Jesus, 
and the saints, uh, but he shall be broken without hand, as Ezekiel 39 describes. So there's three interesting words there. What we're being told in the last days, that this power, this military power, we can see that linking with Russia, is going to prosper through craft. Our brown driver Briggs, Briggs says deceit or treachery, and it is by peace that he succeeds. But he's going to be broken. And again, interestingly, that word broken is the same word that is used of grain on the threshing floor when it's being crushed to separate it. And of course, grain being crushed on the threshing floor reminds us of Armageddon, a heap of sheaves in the valley for judgment, for threshing. So we're told the ultimate end is going to be destroyed, broken without hand, without human hand, divine intervention. But before then, it's peace and craft. So we'll come back to that in, in a moment. So um, if we combine Daniel 2 and Revelation 16, we expect that the final forming stage of the feet, religion will play a big part. In the East, it'll be Orthodox Christianity. In the West, it'll be Roman Catholicism. And directing operations will be Babylon the Great. Not Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, but what the scripture picks that up and come to Revelation, it speaks about the papacy as being that symbol of a religious power trying to seize dominion of people's minds and teach them a false religion and false allegiances, taking people away from the true God. And so we'll have a Catholic Europe and an Orthodox Russia. And in spite of what we're seeing today, they're going to work together because these two legs are attached to one image. Uh, they've got to all work together. Now, what was so interesting was after Brother Thomas had written Elf as Israel, uh, in 1854, he followed that up by publishing uh, this book called Anatolia. Now, it's very difficult to read the fancy print and the title of this book is the longest title of any book I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I'm not gonna read it all, but Anatolia or Russia triumphant and Europe changed, being an exposition of prophecy, showing the inevitable fall of the Russian Ottoman Empire's occupation of Egypt and the Holy Land by the British, etc., etc., and ending with the deliverance of the Jews on the mountains of Israel and the kingdom of God established. That's uh, a real mouthful, that one. But just taking the first two lines there, Anatolia um, is the Greek word for sunrise or the east. It's the word that is used in Revelation 16 verse 12, which speaking of the sixth fire which we're under, that the drying up of the river Euphrates was in order to prepare the way for the kings of the east, or the sun's rising. What we've been seeing since World War I has been preparation for the kingdom of God, for Christ and the saints to rule the earth 
and take control of it. But what is so fascinating is his second part, Russia triumphant and Europe chained. Just lodge that in your mind. A few years later, he reproduced this book and gave it a much simpler title, Fraction Length, a brief exhibition of ex exposition of the prophecy of Daniel, which is now even shorter, the exposition of Daniel. But Russia triumphant, Europe chained. I believe that that very much is the situation we're in today as a result of the peace and the craft that Putin has shown over the past 20 odd years. Now this is an article from four years ago, five years ago, from Stratfor, but it beautifully paints the picture of how Putin works. The former Soviet states lining Russia's border know this better than most since their proximity to the eastern giant renders them to, more vulnerable to Moscow's hybrid warfare tactics than countries further afield. Nations like Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova sit on the front line of Russia's lasting battle with the West for influence in the international system, and they are the countries most at risk of being caught in the crossfire. Russia's goal within this first tier of states is simple, to weaken the West's influence while strengthening its own. One way of doing this is to undermine less, less friendly governments and install more neutral or allied ones. Another is to block or even reverse those states' integration with Western blocs, such as the EU and NATO. So what Putin has been doing using his propaganda and all his um, electronic warfare behind the scenes, as it were, is to influence these nations. And if he sees that they're turning westward, then he'll try and interfere in state things and bring about a change of government so it's more favourable to Russia. Uh, or, if needed, as in the case of Ukraine, he sees it necessary to launch war against them to prevent them going to press. Now this has been going on for a long, long time. And we're now seeing the consequences uh, of this quite secret undermining of many nations. And as this uh, <coughs> headline said, they do business in Russia, now they may pay a price. European countries that have operations in Russia are preparing for collateral damage as Western sanctions aim to penalise Russia's economy. So that was at the start of the Ukrainian war. Uh, Germany and France especially invested very heavily in Russian um, businesses. Uh, a lot of trade was done. and They regard Russia as a very lucrative market. And Vladimir Putin controls the supply chain of Western technology. So who is bluffing? Russia has the power to hobble key industries in the US and Europe by restricting supplies of metals. And then we know that's gone from supplies of metals 
to gas and oil. I don't know how well you can read that chart, but it's northern Macedonia, Finland, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Germany, Italy, Poland, and France, going from 100% of dependency on uh, imports down to France's 24, uh, and Germany was 49%. And we know how desperately they're trying to break free but they're so closely enmeshed that it's going to be impossible in the short term to totally break free from Russia. Now it's becoming more and more clear that Russia has tactics. Um, this is from the Daily Mail on the 12th of March. Did Putin plot with eco-warriors to halt Britain's ranking and keep us all hooked on his gas? Guy Walters examines NATO and US claims that Russia has paid environmental groups to lobby against fracking in this country. And the evidence that he put forward was yes, that uh, in the background, the money that was backing the anti-fracking groups in this country could be traced to Russia. Uh, and you can see why, because it is in Russia's interest that individual countries shut down or don't increase their supplies of gas in order to make them dependent upon him. Uh, this was going back uh, five years ago, Russia's nuclear attack, put that inverted commas on Europe. Uh, Hungary's deal increases reliance on Moscow. Hungary, which of course is in the EU, uh, has uh, a Russian nuclear power, or has Russian nuclear power stations. Russia can't stop the West having their own power stations, but what it encourages them is to use Russian firms. And what Roscom does, it not only, well, it looks after everything, it, it funds it, uh, does it at very favourable prices, extends loans, builds the plant, supplies the nuclear fuel, uh, and Russians control it. So that, if necessary, uh, Russia can turn the tap off, as it were, in countries outside Russia, as far as nuclear power is concerned, if they've gone down that route. And this back in February 2017, was uh, Hungary wanting to build another nuclear power station by Roscom, and it was only last week that they actually uh, got it all signed and sealed and has gone ahead, um, which is quite a blow to the EU because uh, Hungary is part of the EU and here she is pouring money into Russia to build a nuclear power station for her. But that, that's how Russia works. What was even more interesting was this article goes back to 2007, so 15 years ago, EU energy security time to end Russian leverage. And what this says is so interesting. Due to the extremely close relationship between the energy industry and the Kremlin, Russia's oil and gas companies can pursue strategies that make little economic sense, but serve the long-term interests of the Russian state, namely ensuring Russia European dependence on Russian energy supplies. 
For example, the undersea North Stream pipeline will cost at least three times more than the proposed overland route through Lithuania and Poland would have. By divorcing Western European gas supplies from Eastern Europe, however, the undersea route grants Moscow the ability to manipulate the European energy market more effectively. Now, this was written 15 years ago. The West was warned, don't get dependent uh, upon um, Russian gas, but they took no notice. Moscow's entire energy strategy is predicated on continuing expanding its dominant market position in Europe and Eurasia. This position can only be maintained if Russia holds a near monopoly on pipelines into Europe and out of Central Asia. Camp Kremlin recognizes this fact and has vigorously fought all attempts to construct non-Russian controlled pipes from the Caspian region and Central Asia to Europe. Moscow can only extract favorable conditions when it deals with states bilaterally and plays them against each other. So that has been Putin's policy. And it was picked up and the warnings were ignored. Now this one came out last week when German environmentalists and Putin's government had a burning love affair, just to very briefly summarize it. When Nord Stream was proposed, there were three major environmental groups in Germany, and they were all worried about the environmental damage it would do to the Baltic Sea. And so they um, put an injunction uh, out to prevent it being built. So what Gazprom did, that's the Russian uh, gas company, was to set up uh, a, a conservation foundation um, and with it 10 million euros of funding uh, to preserve the Baltic. Um, the German Baltic Sea Nature Conservation Foundation it was called. The three leaders of these three groups, environmental groups, were invited to sit on the board and partake of the lovely funds that were there, which they readily agreed to. And so they then lifted their objection and the pipeline was built. But the other thing that these three groups were all campaigning for, they were opposed to nuclear power in Germany. They were opposed to shale gas exploration and they were opposed to importing LPG gas from America all things which uh, Putin and Gazprom were very willing to carry on funding with their Russian money so that eventually Merkel did close down the nuclear fuels, uh, didn't pursue fracking, and didn't build any ports to receive LPG. So Putin uses his money behind the scenes um, to do what he wants. And so uh, as this cartoon at the end of last year, checkmate. Putin has the West cornered, or as Brother Thomas put it, Russia triumphant and Europe chained to her in her energy supplies. Absolutely fascinating to see how through peace and craft, he has achieved his ends. So are these prophetic expectations being achieved? Well, 
Uh, let's just have a look at the situation in Ukraine. This was the map on the 31st of March after five weeks, when it seems that uh, it wasn't going to be a three-day victory, but uh, Russia had made big advances to the north, to the east, to the south. In the very first days, the um, bridge was secured, which links Ukraine. I'm just getting my pointer up. Uh, there's uh, a land bridge which connects Crimea to the mainland here of Ukraine. Um, there is a big river and a lake here, which used to supply the Crimean Canal, which ran all through Crimea right to the end with lots of individual canals running off, which made Crimea the breadbasket of uh, the uh, Ukraine until um, Russia took it in, 19, in 2014, when the Ukrainians cut off the water supply and the amount of food that was grown in Crimea absolutely plummeted. Well, within the first two days of the war in February the 28th, uh, they had secured those water supplies remove the dam that the Ukrainians had built to stop the water uh, and water began to flow through the canal again. We know that it's been a long, long, hard slog and uh, they haven't had the success. They had to withdraw from all the north, but the main area that he had taken had been in the south, which, as we shall see, brings many advantages to um, Russia. She achieves a lot of what she wanted without taking the rest of the country. So that was a situation at the end of last month after nearly 27 weeks of fighting. Um, sorry, my point is not moving. Um, now here we are after nearly 29 weeks and we've had this dramatic um, incursion into the northern part here. That was last week, 6th of September. Uh, and yesterday they had taken back a huge chunk of what Russia had seized in the past. And this has obviously frightened uh, Russia. Many of the troops are fleeing. Uh, they're even shooting their own troops who, uh, because they're so fearful, are, are fleeing the battle. Now, where's it going to end? Well, just uh, last um, tenth, two days ago, he is now threatening to introduce the most terrible weapon the world's ever seen, which uh, causes all life to have their breath sucked out of them and their bodies vaporized in the 1000 degree centigrade uh, heat that it generates. Now whether he will be allowed to use them we know not but knowing Putin it is quite likely that he would use such a weapon in order to bring a stop to Ukraine's advance and to bring about some talks of a ceasefire. We'll wait and see. But that will be quite an alarming development. So what has he achieved? 
well, as I say, it's almost 29 weeks. Uh, it'll be on Thursday since the invasion. He's hanging on to the important gains he's made in the south. He's secured the water supply to Crimea. He now has control over most of the coal and the lithium supplies and also the wheat silos, which were all in the south. So he still retains control over them. But what is even more important to him, having secured control over all the Ukrainian ports, apart from Odessa, it means he now has the rights, the maritime rights, to the um, gas and oil deposits which lie in the Dead Sea. And there are massive amounts of oil and gas um, in the maritime boundary of whoever possesses the south of Ukraine. So Ukraine has lost all of that and Russia has gained it. But it has been at a great cost. It's estimated that about 50,000 troops have been killed and at least 25 probably far, far more uh, badly injured. So about half the troops have uh, been uh, either killed or put out of action. And is now driven to going to Syria and bringing fighters in from Syria. He's reduced to going to Russian prisons and conscripting Russian prisoners because he will not say this is a war. Uh, this is a special operation. And so he can't uh, do mass conscription. But what he is doing is bringing Europe to its knees over the energy prices. And of course, because energy prices are so high, even though he has been badly hit by the sanctions, he has a good income still coming in. But the main effect is it's caused Germany and France and Europe to wake up to the dangers of energy dependence on Russia. They should have listened to the voices, but they didn't. They thought that uh, all will be well. Uh, and it has driven Finland and Sweden to ask to join NATO now. Whether they do or not very much depends on Turkey because every NATO member has to agree to any additions. And Turkey certainly is not willing to do that at the moment. But it's also drawn the West conflict. So if we just look at uh, the ruble value, you can see how it dipped uh, when the war started and has now risen. And this is a five year chart. And one can see that the ruble now is a value which is at its higher level than it has been for at least four and a half years. So although Russia has suffered in getting supplies from the West, as far as income is concerned, uh, it is doing very well. And so this was an interesting article why Putin might be pleased with the results. Uh, back in 2014, a Russian official said Putin's not so silly as to think he can recreate the Soviet Union, but there is a corner of the former Soviet Union that is probably ours, Belarus, Ukraine, Northern Kazakhstan, and it'd be nice to have the map. There is an expression in Russian that translates to be tender-hearted does not become a sword, which means in practice is the exercise of extreme brutality towards civilians combined with an indifference to Russia's own casualties. 
Russia occupies about a fifth or a sixth of the world's land surface. She sits on between 5 and 25% of almost everything on the planet, with exceptions like uranium and rare earths. Oil and gas will be important revenue for the next 30 years. And it goes on to say that it's being very encouraged by the cracks in European support for Ukraine. They'll be feeding into a perception endlessly peddled by Russian propaganda that democratic nations don't have any stomach for the Russian way of war, and that Russia, as part of its exceptionalism, has the ability to suffer in a prolonged way that Russian Western countries simply don't have. Putin may not be feeling dissatisfied with the way things are going, despite all the insertion, assertions that the invasion is a disaster for him. So what is achieved is the probable end of Ukraine as a viable nation state. If you look at how Putin defines winning, it would be. If Ukraine can't be reintegrated back into the Russian Empire, then no one will have it. And he holds the Trump card, even though he's being driven back. He holds the Trump card of Russian gas supplies. And in the short term, uh, that's going to be a very difficult thing for Europe to overcome uh, because they're so dependent upon Russia. And only last week, uh, Gazprom put out a video warning of the big winter that's going to come and threatening to freeze Europe to death as the ice age begins. So Russia has achieved in making um, Ukraine virtually um, unwantable. It has proved its control over Russian energy supplies, energy prices crippling level, and Europe faces blackouts and fuel impoverishment. And Russia and Ukraine together export 30% of the world's wheat, 60% of the world's sunflower oil, and 20% of the world's corn. And so again, as well as having control over fuel, he has control over food exports. And so the world can not only shiver, it can starve. And Russia has, uh, Europe has been facing a lot of problems. It's not long recovered from the financial crisis, and then was hit by COVID and now faces blackouts and fuel impoverishment. It suffered this year with a prolonged drought, which affected food supplies and meant that they couldn't transport stuff by river. And the folly of net zero is coming home to roost. Uh, and while they're desperately trying to wean themselves off the cheap fuel um, in the short term, Germany uh, faces a calamitous future. And when it comes to the crunch, when Germany is on its knees, when it is cold, when it is hungry, and people have to choose, do we ask Putin to turn on the gas supplies or do we continue to support Ukraine? Then you can understand that pragmatism will uh, take place uh, and they will turn to Russia and away from Ukraine. Now, some of the unexpected, unintended consequences is that it has strengthened 
Russia and China and Iran's ties, which is quite interesting from a prophetic point of view, has pulled Russia or Turkey back into Russia's orbit and has pushed the EU to unite to remove these individual vetoes and to increase its military spending so it can stand on its own feet. And what it has shown is that Britain, outside the EU, uh, has a leadership which it has demonstrated very much in the situation in Ukraine. And NATO has been re-energised and given renewed purposes. <coughs> so, what lies ahead? We're getting there towards the end. Of Russia, Ukraine's 42 million population, one third of that uh, is either uh, internally displaced or has fled the country. So uh, one third of the population has gone. This is the biggest known movement of peoples within a short time frame. Up to 30,000, and that figure probably has now increased quite considerably, have been killed. Many, many more have been injured. To rebuild will cost a trillion dollars. Absolutely staggering figure. And the GDP of Ukraine is expected to fall this year by 55%. In other words, it's being reduced to a basket case. In spite of the heroism of the Ukrainians, um, economically, it is going to be very weak. And so I think changes will come. And we have to remember it's through peace and craft that he prospers. And this war has proved to be a mixed blessing. It has achieved control of the vital south, but that's been at enormous cost. And I think lessons will certainly be learnt. That a conscripted army is weak. It's got to have a, a more volunteer army. And Russia will learn the lessons, will rebuild and re-equip, because we know at the time of the end, when Go comes down against uh, Israel, it will be a strong power. Europe appears to be united against Russia. But if you read so many reports as I do, it's only skin deep. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised. As I say, there will be this switch. And what we've got to remember, brothers and sisters, we're not expecting the imminent invasion of Israel. This isn't the next step. The next step is the calling away of the saints. And Armageddon, I believe, will be some 10 years later, based on Revelation 23, which we haven't time to look at. So our focus is not to see, well, Russia is so weak and she can't go and invade. It's to realise we've got to be called away. And when we've been called away, then there'll be plenty of time for Russia to rebuild from the wealth she's getting from the good energy prices um, uh, and be in a position to lead his companions of Ezekiel 38 against Israel. So what we're seeing, and I'll just put these up very quickly because we've seen them once before, uh, is events that are pushing these nations uh, uh, and a lot more it will go on, especially when Europe is on its knees and the Euro has probably collapsed and Russia you know, seems to be in a much stronger position than she is at the moment because Europe for a little while will be very weak, we'll have to regroup 
and rebuild herself up again. So very briefly, as see, it's already nine o'clock. Um, so UK and the new King and Prime Minister. So last Tuesday, and that was the picture that we saw. Um, what we have to remember about this trust is that back 12 years ago, no, 10 years ago today, uh, was published this book, Britannia Unchanged, Global Lessons for Growth and Prosperity. Uh, it was written by five MPs, Quateng, who is now the uh, Chancellor, uh, Patel, Raab, Skidmore and Truss, who is now the Prime Minister, setting out how Britannia could be unchained from the EU, be independent, low taxation and move forward uh, and be a strong power again. And it's had to wait 10 years for the circumstances to come around. But we now have this trust, who was one of the main authors of the book, uh, as the Prime Minister. And she, of course, has been uh, very much involved in signing the trade agreements with countries around the world in preparation. Uh, and somebody summarised up this book, this is a pro-freedom, pro-growth, optimistic argument for the UK to adopt the best policy ideas from the likes of Singapore and Israel, rather than from the complacent, smug EU bureaucrats of Europe. And this idea of Singapore and Israel is what uh, is in the book. So what we have is we're living in a remarkable time. This year has been a remarkable year because Isaiah 23, just again, I'm sorry, for just a few more minutes, please. Isaiah 23 uh, is a wonderful chapter all about the destruction of Tyre in uh, Isaiah's day. Uh, and then it moves forward to the latter days and speaks of Tyre being forgotten for 70 years as the days of one king. And then after those 70 years, uh, it ends in verse uh, 15, uh, Tyre shall sing as an harlot. In verse 17, after the end of 70 years, Yahweh will visit Tyre Shall, she shall return to her hire and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth and her merchandise shall be devoted to God. So here we are in February of this year, Britain's only monarch who has lived 70 years and there have been precious few throughout the world that reigned 70 years. She came to her 70th year and another I think 261 days after that, uh, she has died. So we're now in this time period, 70 years have ended. After the 70 years, the entire prospers. We've now got, as I say, Elvis Truss uh, as the Prime Minister to direct that. But what is so fascinating, uh, and this will make your spine tingle, that uh, you've probably seen this book, uh, The Servant Queen and the King Whom She Serves. Well, in the middle of the book is a picture of a Bible. And the most remarkable thing is, what chapter is it turned to? It's Isaiah 23. So the 
authors of this booklet about the Queen, which was to celebrate her 90th birthday, must have had the same understanding that we have, that Isaiah 23 is speaking about the latter-day Tyre power, which is Britain, and how she will prosper. Absolutely remarkable. <coughs> and the new king, Charles III, uh, I think we now see him in a, a bit more favourable light. He has certainly been, uh, sorry, well built up by his, in statesmanship by his mother for this time. I think he and this trust will be very like-minded. He's very strong on the Commonwealth, as she is. Very strong on not being entangled with the EU, as certainly uh, the Queen was not wanting to be entangled with the EU. I think he shares the same feeling. So I, I think we have a remarkable partnership. And uh, Charles admires Israel and so does Truss. Um, she's fought to free uh, Northern Ireland from EU control. She's fought to all these agreements. She's determined to make Britain a, a trading power, a world trading power. And just if her radical solution to energy prices works, then we're told that inflation could rapidly come down. And if Britain is blessed with a mild winter to ensure that there are no blackouts and industry can keep going, then sterling, which is uh, in the doldrums at the moment with the euro, uh, could well bounce back. And if the EU suffers more badly than Britain this winter, then we can see job migration. It's already been talked about that if the power goes off in Europe, uh, American firms who've got their bases in Europe will move them to London if London still has power. And so this article last week, you know, if she has luck, uh, then things can greatly change. Well, uh, we won't read it, but uh, we know that these things are under God's control. And so we're seeing two groupage, those of countries friendly to Israel um, and Britain there and off the map America and New Zealand and Australia, but a vast assembly of nations who are opposed to Israel, step by step, um, two groups, the sheep and the goats of Revelation 25, of uh, Matthew 25. And so the scene is being set, brothers and sisters, for the ultimate invasion of the land of Israel and the fulfilment of Bible prophecy. So here we are, we're at the end of the road. As far as we're concerned, we're going to the next thing we look for is to be called away. Um, and uh, the Lord Jesus truly is standing at the door and knocking. And so just my final one, just to keep up to date, um, every two or three days I put out the snippets, uh, which are a collection of interesting items. If you want them, just send me an email. Um, in the Bible magazine, every quarter, do updates. I've got another one to, latest one to do next week. And the milestones are now changed from a printed copy to um, an electronic copy on the third issue, the first two issues have come out, but the third issue 
should have come out uh, two months ago, but I have been so busy. I have started it. Hopefully I might get it out this month. Uh, no guarantees. But uh, if you want the back copies, um, then again, just send me an email and request the milestones. So thank you for your patience. Uh, we're living in fascinating times, brothers and sisters. So let's be encouraged by these things. Be strong and keep watching. Our master really is at the door. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen